This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel. Before becoming host of Where We Live, I was a public radio reporter for about 17 years. There are so many stories to tell in our communities, but often we're restricted by story length. Is this a one- or two-minute story that airs during our newscast, or does it warrant the four- to five-minute feature? Where We Live gives us a chance to focus on the stories of residents in a more thoughtful way. That's why today, where we live, I've invited a couple of residents into the studio to talk about a population they're a part of, a group that's often overlooked not just here in Connecticut, but across the nation. Earlier this month, President Obama delivered a keynote address to the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. No matter what your background, no matter what your story, whether you're first generation or fifth generation American, You're bound by something more powerful than your differences, and that is this unshakable faith in America. That notion that here in this country, we can make of our lives what we will. And the the AAPI community, you're part of the lifeblood of this nation. AAPI, he's referring to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We're going to learn about population trends in Connecticut, and we'll hear from Asian Americans who live here about their experiences growing up in the U.S., the stereotyping they've experienced, their views on how Asians are depicted in media, including the entertainment industry. We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. On the phone with me now is Moi Moi Hin McCormick. She's the executive director of the Connecticut Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission. Moi Moi, thanks for joining Where We Live. Thank you, Lucy, for the invitation. So traditionally when uh, we say the phrase Asian Americans, people may typically think of Chinese Americans or Japanese Americans. Maybe they think of, of Indians. Who does your commission represent? How many subgroups are we talking about? So our commission actually has a variety of different subgroups that we represent. And I think um, a lot of times it's broken down geographically to be able to provide, um, you know, some additional information. So we have the Southeast Asians, we have East Asians, we have um, Pacific Islanders, um, and, you know, There are different communities throughout Connecticut that our commission represents, and we are responsible for, um, you know, each of the 169 towns. So it's not as if we're just concentrating solely on one community over the other. We hear that the Asian American population has grown considerably across the country, just in Connecticut alone, um, about 65 percent from 2000 to 2010. So where do you see these pockets in Connecticut and why this uh, growth? So, um, you know, absolutely, as you indicated, Lucy, the population in Connecticut grew 65% in 10 years. Nationally, it's grown 46% in 10 years. Um, You know, by 2015, we are expected to have a little over 40 million um, APIs uh, throughout the United States. Um, And I think what we've been seeing is uh, similar to the national trend. We have a lot of increase um, in different communities. We've seen an increase in the Southeast Asian communities because of their own refugee status regarding, um, you know, after the war that took place back in the 1970s. You have a lot of, um, or you have several resettlement agencies that are actually located throughout Connecticut, um, Hartford, New Haven, that um, assist these refugee populations. Um, 
the more established, you know, communities like the Chinese and Japanese um, continue to grow as well. Asian Indians are our largest, um, you know, ethnic group in Connecticut, followed by the Chinese, followed by the Filipino. The national trend is um, Chinese represents the most um, APIs, and then Filipinos, and then Asian Indians. So the trends are similar, um, as you could tell. And what has attracted Asians to Connecticut? Um, what fields of, of industry? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's very similar to other communities in the sense of employment and education are primary um, attractors for different communities and different groups. Um, and the Asian community stems back, you know, all the way to the 1800s for the United States, from the gold rush to the transcontinental railroads to agriculture. Um, so it really has a lot of history. Um, that the Asian Americans have brought to the United States. Educational opportunities is always huge where you have a lot of students. You have a lot of other opportunities for students as well. Um, and then you also have individuals with the refugee status, as, as I indicated, in addition to wanting to have a better life, you know, trying to attain that American dream that a lot of um, groups can, you know, um, definitely relate to. And tell me about your background, Moy Moy. Um, how did your family end up in Connecticut? So um, I am a, a refugee from Laos. I consider myself Chinese Lao American. Um, we were very fortunate to be able to come to the United States um, because we had sponsorship from a church in Wallingford. Um, the church basically said to their um, you know, members, we have a young family coming from Laos with, you know, two kids, um, parents that are in their 20s. We really need some families to be able to help out. So back then, sponsorship was really a little bit different than how it is now. Um, the What ended up happening is the church had two families that really stood up and said, we, we definitely want to welcome these um, you know, this family to Connecticut. They helped us from, you know, helping my dad to um, navigate and um, you know, learn the uh, driver's test um, to attaining a job, to helping my sister and I with English. Um, so they really were very, very crucial in um, us being able to be where we are. Um, it's very difficult to come to a foreign place, not by choice. So that's the other part is, you know, when you're a refugee, you're not coming and leaving by choice. It's because you're seeking um, safety. You know, you really are fearful of your life because of government, because of religious persecution or, or what have you. Um, so it's not by choice that the refugees do come, but when they do come, they try to do what they can as fast as they can. Um, and it's still very difficult. Not only do you have, um, you know, cultural issues, you have language issues. You have assimilation, you have, um, you know, cross-generational. Um, so there's a whole host of different things that come um, when you do come to the United States. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Moy Moy Hin McCormick, Executive Director of the Connecticut Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission. Also in studio with me are two Asian Americans who grew up in Connecticut. Sonny Chen is a Chinese American and a West Hartford resident, also owner of Black Bamboo Restaurant. And Quinn Trong is a Vietnamese American and Hartford resident. Thanks for joining Where We Live. Thanks, Lucy. So, Quinn, I'll start with you. Tell me about your family's uh, arrival here in, in the U.S. So our family came in late 1990, and we are um, part of a wave of Vietnamese immigrants who came um, in the 90s as a result of legislation to help um, the former kind of 
prisoners of war in, in Vietnam. So my dad was in the Vietnamese re-education camps for seven years after the Vietnam War. And um, and so because of his experiences there, I guess the, the American government created a program called the HO program that allowed families of um, these Vietnamese um, men from the South Vietnamese Army to come over um, in the 90s. And Sonny, how about you? Well, um, my 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 parents came here when they were probably like in the late 80s, and they're coming here for just a better life, um, more opportunities. Over there, they couldn't get a job, and just better uh, opportunity for us as a family. And what was your assimilation like here in Connecticut? I understand both of you grew up in West Hartford. That's right. Yeah, yep. <laughs> Sunny. Um, um, I I can't hear you say that again. Um, what What was it like growing up in West Hartford for you? I was well. I originally I grew I came here. You know, I grew up in Hartford, but I just moved to uh, West Hartford about what six years six years ago. But growing in Hartford was um was different. You know, I I came here. I didn't um I didn't speak any English. Uh, you know, it was was hard just finding friends and just communicating with um my friends. But it's Definitely, w- w- it was really hard. I never seen um, a people of color before back in China. As so, when I when I first came here, it was a little bit like frightening seeing mm-hmm. people of different color because I had never seen it before. Mm. So it was uh, it was you know it was tough growing up. Mm-hmm. I had a really different experience. So my family came right away to West Hartford, and my parents scrapped. Um, you know, funds together, and we lived in a basement apartment just so that we could go to the West Hartford school system. And I grew up with a lot of Jewish kids. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of Caucasian kids. And, you know, I grew up as one of the few handful of, you know, Asian kids in the entire elementary school, you know, for a while. Um, I knew every single other Asian kid, and most of the other Asian kids were Vietnamese. So I had a very different sense of diversity and of myself, um, and I I didn't get that sense of diversity. I don't think that you did growing up in Hartford. No, I just want to say what Quinn said. It's, it's true. I was the uh, there's and I went to No Webster. I remember elementary school in, in Hartford and West End. I was the me and this other guy. I remember his name is Chris. We we're the only Asians mm-hmm. in the whole school. And I was just thinking, you know, without him, there's no one really I could connect to or tra- or even translate mm-hmm. kind of what we what was going on in school and you know because I like I said I came here I speak zero English mm-hmm. I never you know I grew up in China back kind of in a farm area so there was no even TV about hearing English mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah definitely it was you know I mean it was I mean it has a lot of other like Hispanic and but it, you know no website did provide a good um, ESL program, but it was definitely was, was, it was tough. Yeah, yeah. I grew up, uh, and I went to Webster Hill Elementary School, which is in West Hartford, and had a, an excellent ESL program. Um, but still, you know, I came from speaking no English, and then I came to, you know, I was in second grade, and suddenly I was surrounded by kids who didn't look like me, who didn't talk like me, who had very different food, you know, during lunch. And uh, it, was, it was definitely um, a huge growing up experience. I wanted to go back to you, Moy Moy, um, as executive director of the Connecticut Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission. You know, how does the commission work uh, to reach um, Asian Americans, whether they've been here for many generations or they are new to our community? 
Thank you, Lucy. That's a great question. So I think a lot of our efforts and focus is really about getting to know our community. It's about, you know, going into various towns and cities and meeting with community leaders, community members, and trying to provide the education and outreach that's needed, in addition to um, attaining the important information about concerns and other issues that our community members express, and then bringing it to the government, bringing it to providers, trying to bridge that gap. Um, It's a lot of work because we don't have just, you know, a predominant kind of one ethnic group in Connecticut. We have a variety of different communities with multiple languages and, um, you know, differences in needs. It's not the homogeneous in the sense of we're all the same Asians, we look the same, speak the same, have the same needs. So it becomes a little bit challenging as to, you know, how we're able to gather and then really um, bring attention to specific needs that we have. This is where we live. Are you a first or second generation Asian American? What brought you and your family to the U.S., to Connecticut? Tweet us or find us on Facebook at Where We Live. Now, Moy Moy, I think it's um, interesting that you were talking about the commission's work because just in the last uh, week with the new budget that was approved by the General Assembly, um, there was a proposal that these uh, commissions would be merged um, from, I think, six to just two. So how will this how will your work be affected? Well, um, Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission will be eliminated as of July 1st, just like the other five legislative commissions. This is very unfortunate. Um, It's really disheartening, uh, especially because May is National um, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Connecticut has really been seen as one of the leading states to be able to welcome and accept and provide those resources. Now I think this really um, puts us, you know, backwards. Um, You're talking about marginalized communities historically and presently, and now we're taking independent, um, the independence away from each of our commissions and consolidating, which is really eliminating and creating two new commissions. Um, The budget did pass the Senate and House last week, and now it's going to the governor's office for signature. And the commission, the new two commissions will be Commission on Equal Opportunity, which is supposed to have a policy division of Asian Pacific Americans, African Americans, and Latino Puerto Rican Americans. And then the other second commission is Commission on Women, Children, and Elderly. And it's going to have policy divisions of women, children, and the elderly. So obviously we're not going to be able to continue the work that we've been doing. We've had great initiatives and projects that we've been working on from Problem Gambling Initiative where we're partnering with DEMIS Problem Gambling Services and Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, which is a nonprofit, and community leaders to be able to really provide culturally and linguistically um, education and outreach to our various communities. We've had the ISB cards, which raise awareness about language rights, um, anybody receiving or anybody going to federally funded services such as hospitals, they actually have the right to have a qualified interpreter. Responsibility is placed on the provider and not the community, which a lot of times I think our community members feel like it's their responsibility. You know, there's business initiatives that we've started and continued, mental health needs, medical needs. It's just a host of stuff, Lucy. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we look at the makeup of the General Assembly, I think I can think of uh, three Asian Americans who represent um, some towns and cities in the state. Is that correct? That is correct. So we have Senator Tony Wong, we have Representative William Tong, and then we have Representative Dr. Prasad Sarinavasan. Those are the three. And have they weighed in on on the work of the commission? 
They have, and you know, we've been able to partner with their offices and with them as well for previous projects and initiatives that we've had. Um, they've attended, you know, various events that we've hosted. They've been guest speakers, um, so we have been able to work with them. You touched on um, disparities that exist uh, among the Asian American population um, in Connecticut across the country. Um, this is something we're going to talk about a little further later in the show. But you know, there's that idea that Asians are the model minority, um, that they don't um, have any uh, issues uh, in their lives, that they do well in school, they have great careers. Um, can you talk about how that is a challenge when we know that there are uh, needs in all communities? Absolutely. So the model minority myth really creates barriers for our communities to receive funding and services. A lot of times when we have a review reports assessments, um, we see either very, very low numbers of Asian Americans or we don't see them at all. And um, a lot of times what I've been really trying to encourage others attaining this information is question your source and start asking, how are you gathering your information? How many Asian Americans, are you actually surveying or asking to participate? Um, you know, because those numbers could be very low. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not an issue of mental health or medical or housing or education. It means that, you know, these communities aren't being asked to participate, or if they are being asked, they're not getting high responses. And if they're not getting high responses, then it goes to questioning the outreach and the recruitment, you know, how effective is somebody or some agency able to actually engage um, Asian Americans, you know, into the work. Um, it creates a lot of barriers, like I said, you know, funding um, doesn't get focused to the Asian Americans because people assume that there's no medical needs, there's no mental health issues, there's no educational, um, you know, it, it really is where if you, if people aren't making an issue, and I think that's an assumption that people are making as well, if they're not hearing from, if they're not seeing the complaints, then there's not an issue. And that's, you know, really not true. There's a lot of basic needs our Asian communities are faced with. The Muslim and Sikh communities, you know, after 9-11, I mean, we hear it, we see it all the time in the news in Connecticut, nationally. They're um, targeted for hate crimes, harassment, discrimination. Um, it, it just goes on and on and on. Bullying for our children. Um, you know, there's just so many different disparities that go unmet and untreated uh, because there aren't resources. And the resources that are out there aren't culturally appropriate or linguistically appropriate. Uh, before we go to a break, I just wanted to um, circle back to our guests in studio. Um, when your families came here uh, to Connecticut, um, you mentioned, uh, Sunny, that there was another kid that um, also was of Asian descent, but that was really it. So um, do you remember any support systems in place to help your families? Or was it just, um, you know, if you, if you saw another immigrant family or someone of your background that you felt um, that you had a commonality there? Um, excuse me. There's no really, I don't think there was really support systems. It's mainly just, you know, support from your family that who came here before you know, a couple year or a couple year ahead of us, basically everybody kind of, ne- yeah, no one really reached out, you know, to us or kind of you know just you know my cousin that who was you know they've been here probably ten years ago that you know they have a house here and stuff. Basically, just you know from family members supporting. So relying on family. And Quinn, did you and your family seek out other Vietnamese? Yeah, so I think similar to Sunny, we relied on our family for everything. And I, you know, speaking to what Moimoy was talking about, um, 
Asian Americans underutilize social services because it's not in our culture to seek these things out. That doesn't mean that we don't have these needs, but um, we, we, we fear that it's going to be too much and we don't want to put ourselves out there. And so we'd rather, you know, double up on housing or just not talk about our issues until they become an issue. And so um, it's, it's good to hear more when we talk about some of these bigger problems. We need to take a break. I want to thank Moy Moy Hin McCormick, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission. We heard her say on the air starting July 1st that commission will no longer exist. Moy Moy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Lucy. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're focusing on Asian Americans. They're the fastest growing minority group in the state and in the U.S. In studio with me are two residents whose families moved here when they were young children. Sonny Chen is a Chinese American and the owner of Black Bamboo Restaurant in West Hartford. And also Quinn Trong is a Vietnamese American who lives in Hartford. Are you Asian American? What was it like growing up in Connecticut? Or did you move here as an adult and now raising kids born in the U.S.? How do you hold on to your customs and culture? Comment on our website, WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I wanted to actually take a, a phone call now. Um, Rayhan from Middletown is calling. Thanks for calling Where We Live, Rayhan. Hi, Lucy. How's it going? I'm well, thanks. So tell us a little bit about your story. Um, so I came to America in 1992 from Pakistan. Um, we lived in New York. We moved to Connecticut uh, when I was going to second grade. And um, we are fortunate enough to move to a, um, uh, in a middle-class uh, area with a good school system uh, when I was in fourth grade. And that's basically where I had majority of my education. Um, and unfortunately, when I was a freshman in high school, which was ninth grade, second day of high school was when uh, 9-11 happened, and it really um, affected me personally because uh, originally I wasn't born with the name Rehan. I had to get it changed because uh, my name was Usama, and that, as you guys know, was the name of uh, one of the terrorists. Um, so I had a very uh, challenging experience, but I learned through that experience that a lot of my teachers had my back, a lot of my friends had my back, and my family had my back, and it really did help shape the individual I am today. Um, that must have been a difficult time after 9-11. Um, so tell us when you said it, you had difficulties, I mean, what were some of the things that, you know, some of your classmates or others um, said to you? Uh, again, these people were in the minority. There weren't too many individuals, but... Um, just one thing that will always stay with me is when they called me a terrorist. It just, when you're at that age, you don't, you you would never expect someone to call you something like that. It really, I think it really can affect a young individual. And, and it did. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, but uh, originally, at first, I was very quiet about it. I didn't tell too many individuals. I kept the burden on my shoulders because I didn't want to involve my parents because I think they already knew that 9-11 had an impact on me because I remember the following day, which was a Wednesday, I had called out sick because I, re I really didn't want to go to school. Mm -hmm. And you can tell this is an emotional uh, topic for me. Yeah. But 
Yeah, uh, they. Uh, I don't want to say there was any physical alterations, but I was pushed around a couple times. It was more. It was just more verbal. And now you're you're an adult. Many years later, and this still resonates with you. I mean, how has this? How did that impact you um, as you moved on to college and your career? Um. Well, one one thing my my mother always says, still to, still to this day, is that. I went through such, um, for me, it was a difficult situation. Now, I grant, granted, I know people go through many other difficult situations, uh, even more so than I did. Um, but it really did help teach me that I had a support system with my friends, with my family, and that I should never, you know, uh, feel like I'm alone. And a lot of my friends did not have the same background, were not the same ethnicity, um, but they had my back. And... That's something that resonated with me, and that's what I tell uh, tell my younger cousins, that you're not in it alone. You don't need to, you know, hold things in. And I think as uh, Quinn was saying it before, um, uh, I don't want to generalize, but uh, as Asian Americans, we might not reach out to a lot of the um, programs we have to help individuals, regardless of their age. So... This is why I wanted to bring this up. Like, um, if there's any uh, children listening or young individuals listening, that besides family, you do have your friends, you do have your teachers. There are support groups in, uh, available in your uh, in your uh, towns and your environment. You just sometimes you might have to look for them. Well, Rayhan, I, I, I thank you for your story. I, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd ask that, do you mind holding on for a little bit so we can bring on yeah, some of sure, our other sure, guests? Sure. Um, Quinn, when you, when you heard Rayhan's story, you were nodding um, often. Uh, Quinn Trong is a Vietnamese-American. Her family came here as refugees, and she grew up in West Hartford. Um, we were talking about the supports that Asian-Americans have, and um, oftentimes it's uh, you rely on your family, and you may not know where to turn. So tell me, um, for people who are listening, um, for populations who maybe culturally are told, you know, to keep it in the family, um, you know, we're here for you, and we don't want to talk about um, stress and other things that are happening with uh, people outside the family. And what can you tell them? I would say that, you know, I, Asian Americans underutilize the mental health system more than any other um, ethnic or minority group. And that doesn't mean that we don't have any uh, stressors or anxieties or depression or mental health problems or addiction problems. It's just, it just means that we are not good at asking for help and we're not good at um, sharing what our issues are. And as a professional in the mental health field, I see over and over again um, how few Asian Americans um, utilize the, the, the services or the help that are out there. So I encourage um, us as a community to be more outspoken um, and, and more um, verbal about our needs and about what's going on inside, because I think that bottling that up is going to result in crisis later. You know, coming from a family with a lot of trauma, going through a war. My dad went through, you know, seven years of being in, in, in labor camps, essentially. You know, I think what saved him was being able to share those stories in a way that, um, you know, made him feel affirmed and, and heard. And um, it, it's it's really important to, to be able to reach out. But it is difficult and it is not in our values to to share, I think saving face is a big value, right? And so, um, and and then to reaffirm what um, what our speaker, our, our other guest speaker said, you know, I think there are a lot of great um, educators in the communities who um, 
you know, were there for me when I was growing up. A lot of my teachers um, and, and throughout school, throughout the West Hartford school systems, are still in my life today, and, and they've supported me through some tough times. So um, I want to encourage our, our communities to reach out as much as possible. And, and Sunny, uh, I wanted to go to you. Um, growing up as a, a Chinese-American, do you remember being stereotyped and how you dealt with that in the schools? I mean, here and there, you know, I, I got, you know, when I was um, at elementary school, I got making, making fun of, you know, because, like I said, I didn't, I didn't speak any English. I'll come here and say, you know, because obviously Chinese sounds different as English or, you know, Vietnamese, whatever, and, they're, they're, you know, kids would just, you know, pick on me. And also because, um, you know, my eyes are, you know, different, you know, I, I, I you know, but... I I don't know I did I just didn't really you know pay much attention kind of you know I I mean I get you know here and there sometimes you know I like I said but I I don't know I I didn't really pay much attention to those um, things. And you have children now, Sunny? Yes, I do. So tell me um, how your experience is growing up and and how that influences how you talk to your children, the second generation. Well, my son's not even two yet, so oh. <laughs> it's hard. But but I you mean, have nephew, your nephew. I think you, uh, Lydia had told us a story, a producer about um, an interaction you that for, that your nephew had. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Um, so I have a nephew that's you know um, I think eight years old, and but you know he was telling me experience that he you know have in soccer practice where you know he goes to soccer practice and even like the coaches call him China man, mm. which is. It's, it's like as a coach, as a someone that you look up to, you shouldn't be calling an, an individual, you know, certain, you know, because of their Chinese. So you know what? So what? When he does that, when the coach calls you Chinaman, obviously the kids, your 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 teammates, you know, they would think that oh, it's fine, for, you know, for the coach calling. So I could call him to. And so when my nephew was telling me the story, I you know I would just I was upset because he was kind of like. Tearing, you know, mm-hmm. he's a very like shy, you know, shy kid. But so I, you know, it's just it's just sad to see that while you know it's still, I mean, obviously I think race racism will always happen, but it's just sad to see where, you know, it's like from a coach. I mean, I see sometimes from a kid to a kid that about about the same age, you know, sometimes it's like you know it's okay. That, I mean, it shouldn't I, I shouldn't say it's okay, but it's just from a adult, it just you know. Mm-hmm. It's, so let me ask you, you confronted that coach, and what was what was their reaction when you told them that that's not a proper, I know, label term uh, when you're speaking to my nephew? No, no, I, I haven't confronted I'm oh. I'm in the process, you know, calling okay. him, but I've just mm-hmm. been busy at work. Yeah. But, but no, it's an I, uncomfortable I, conversation to have. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, whenever I talk about race, 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 you know, it's definitely uncomfortable to have, but, you know, I ha- you know, you have to speak up just like, you know, you have to, when you need something, when you want to voice be heard, you definitely have to speak up and let them know. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on Asian Americans in our communities. I want to take a call from Sarah from Danbury. Sarah, you're on Where We Live. Oh, hi, yes. Um, I just wanted to share comments regarding um, growing up in the Philippines, um, how the how different it is. Um, the school system there than the school system here. Um, I noticed that uh, it's very loose. I mean, I don't mean to say the the culture here is very loose. I mean, I was in total shock 
Um, I was in uh, ninth grade, which is part of the middle school at that time in Danbury. And kids have no respect for their teachers, and I noticed that already. Um, We have such a deep, profound respect for our our teacher and and where I come from. And it's just, they're like up there next to your parents. And you basically, they're our second set of parents, you know, um, if you're not in school. I mean, if you're not at home, you know, your teacher is like your, your next parent, your, your parents at all. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, the reason why I was calling is that um, there's a, 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 basically there's um, the teachers are allowed to basically discipline you in school if you're not behaving. So that's the difference I noticed in the schools here. So you're from Danbury. That's a fairly diverse um, community. It is, but not at none of the time that I came here. That was in the early '80s when I came here. Um, at that time, there's only like a handful of Asian Americans in Danbury school uh, system. So there were a lot of um, Vietnamese, and we're all kind of sort of congregated together at the lunchroom. Um, but as far as socializing with other Americans, um, we hardly did that. Um, we were kind of in our own little world. Um, I think that's the reason of why we're so quiet and model students is because we were afraid of making fun of. Mm-hmm. And um, so you came to, to America in the 80s. Uh, do you have a family now? Do you have kids in the school system? Yes. Well, we did. We we had. I had family here when we came here, so we had a lot of support system as far as getting around, to getting us to the doctors. Um, you know, dealing with um, how to deal with the other Americans because I have a lot of cousins who are half Americans and half Asian. So you know, they were able to give me support as well. Well, th- thank you, Sarah, for your call. Um, I wanted to go back to Rayhan from Middletown. Are you still with us, Rayhan? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, as a Pakistani-American, um, you had mentioned uh, growing up in a, a town in Connecticut, um, mm-hmm. a lot of your support uh, were uh, Caucasian students, and Correct. they were your close friends. And so yeah. when you moved on to college, did you find that uh, when you met other South Asians that um, they that you felt connected to them? Uh, did they were did they become a natural support, or um, be, were you, did you just feel very American at that at that point in time? So my freshman year, um, I try at UConn. I tried to uh, join uh, the specific uh, Asian uh, communities they had there, the Indian and Pakistani uh, communities. And um, in my experience, it didn't go uh, as well as others uh, because there was a disconnect. Uh, one thing I will always remember was they called me uh they called me whitewashed or uh yeah whitewashed because that's how I talked my mannerisms reflected the area I came from and to them uh it meant that I wasn't as Pakistani or Indian as them um and it's very interesting because you know one thing you learn as you're growing up just because you're from Texas or Connecticut doesn't mean uh, if you speak differently, it doesn't mean you're not Texan, and it doesn't mean you're not Canadian. It's it, it caught me off guard when they had said that. And another thing I'll always remember is uh, I still hung out with my close friends that uh, also went to school with me, and they would call them um, in our language or 
they would call them uh, like white or whitewash. So mm-hmm. it kind of did offend me and it kind of made me do a 180. And I just basically uh, decided to choose my friends more based on their personalities and not because of their uh, backgrounds. Now, again, not everyone has these types of um, experiences. Uh, experiences, mm-hmm. exactly. But th- this was my experience. Well, Rayhan, I want to thank you for calling and, and telling us your story. I really appreciate it. And before we take a break, I want to go to a caller from Orange, Connecticut. Sylvester, you're on Where We Live. Oh, uh, good morning, Lucy. Thank you very much for taking my call. I just wanted to uh, say congratulations. That This is a great program as an Asian American thank in you. Connecticut. I've always been wondering if, if anybody would ever get to uh, the Asian American community. I, I just wanted to... Um, uh, say again, thank you for for having the uh, the, the program, uh, the topic of, uh, in your program on on this subject. But I wanted to just make a comment uh, about being a, an Asian American parent in Connecticut. I'm uh, 60 years old this year, but I have a six year old son and a three year old daughter. And my wife is um, is from Ansonia. She's uh, Italian, uh, Irish, uh, of Italian Irish background. But at home. Uh, I, I do speak, uh, although I was born in Minnesota, I grew up in the Philippines. And I learned three of the dialects over there. And as my children are growing up, I am actually speaking to them in one of those three, the, the most uh, one dialect I feel most comfortable with. And then, of course, I'm also trying to get my children to learn Spanish as well as uh, hopefully Chinese and Arabic. But in Connecticut, I've found uh, since uh, the children were coming along that it's very difficult to get Connecticut engaged in languages, mm. uh, and I just, that's all I really wanted to throw out there. That's really interesting, and good luck uh, uh, raising those young ones. I, I hear yes. you there. <laughs> Thank you very much, and a great program. Thank you very much, Sylvester. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're focusing on Asian Americans this hour. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to hear from Jeff Yang, featured contributor for CNN Opinion. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Asian American population in Connecticut has grown by 65% from 2000 to 2010, and federal data shows that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders make up one of the fastest growing racial groups in the country. In studio with me are two Connecticut residents who are Asian Americans, Sunny Chen and Quinn Trong. And joining us now by phone is Jeff Yang, featured contributor for CNN Opinion. He's also the author of several books, including I Am Jackie Chan, My Life in Action, and Eastern Standard Time, a guide to Asian influence in American culture from Astro Boy to Zen Buddhism. Jeff, welcome to where we live. Thank you, Lucy. Um, so I, I understand that your son, Hudson, is the star of the hit ABC television series, Fresh Off the Boat. For those of <laughs> us who are, not, who are unfamiliar with the show, what's it about? It's about a family uh, that uh, moves from a, an inner city uh, urban enclave that's very diverse, a Chinatown area, uh, to a white suburban neighborhood down in Orlando, Florida and uh, has to deal with the feelings of dislocation and uh, isolation that, you know, being a fish out of water really uh, brings to you as an immigrant in America. So let's listen to an excerpt from the show. This is an interaction between the parents. Uh, Father Luis Huang is played by Randall Park, and the mother, Jessica Huang, played by Constance Wu. Great news. I joined the country club. We're all members. No, we're not doing that anymore. Cancel the membership. What? We need to reconnect with our culture, not surround ourselves with white people doing white things. You know what's a white thing? Hanging up a Buddha picture. 
Jessica, you got me all excited about the country club, and now I want to do it. Our parents made sure we knew where we came from. We need to do the same thing for the boys. So interesting hearing about some of the conflicts uh, um, as first-generation uh, families navigate uh, living in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about your background, Jeff. Well, I was born in the United States. In fact, I was born in, in Brooklyn, New York, one of the most diverse places in one of the most diverse cities in uh, America. Uh, but I, I grew up uh, still primarily surrounded by people who didn't share my background, you know, who weren't uh, Taiwanese-American, uh, who didn't uh, bring, you know, leftovers from dinner for lunch the next day and, and have people kind of say, hey, you know, what is that stuff you're eating? Uh, so I definitely felt a lot of, of empathy, a lot of uh, first-person nostalgia in a lot of ways, uh, watching Fresh Off the Boat at the things that my son, who plays the sort of lead uh, lead kid, the, the lens through which all this action is taking place, uh, goes through as a child himself. And the show set in the 1990s, so it's very much of a period and one that I recognize personally. So there's been a lot of TV shows recently with characters and narratives that highlight the uh, day-to-day lives of Asian Americans. So fresh off the boat, um, I'm thinking about the Mindy Project starring Mindy Kaling and Master of None starring Aziz Ansari. So why do you think that more and more of these shows pop up and why is there such a difference when we look at Hollywood? So I think that something really interesting is happening right now with television in particular. There's a lot of TV. People talk about peak TV, uh, more good quality, interesting uh, stuff to watch than, than eyeballs to really watch it. And uh, part of this is because TV itself is changing. You, you have so many more places to watch TV. You've got streaming. You've got cable. You've got network, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what we're seeing, I think, is that uh, because there are so many more platforms, people are experimenting more to try to gr- grab eyeballs that historically haven't actually been focused on. And Asian Americans, I think, are, are uh, you know, maybe one of the best examples of that. It's been 20-some years before, uh, since the last show we saw that had an Asian American family at its core, All-American Girl, uh, which was back in 1996, 1997. So that's one reason. The other reason is, is simply put, television is uh, a place where uh, you could call it almost like a trailing indicator of what America's mores and, and social values and cultural acceptance looks like. When something appears on, on TV, it means that you know, maybe the rest of the world is kind of ready to talk about it and see it and invite it into their living rooms. So you know, we finally reached a place where I think Asian Americans in particular have you know, grown in size and stature and profile that America and the television industry is really ready to say, hey, uh, we can't ignore this group quite so much anymore. And, and that's why they took this uh, a little bit of a flyer, perhaps, on, on putting fresh off the bat out there with success. And as we all know, in Hollywood, when success happens, people follow. Um, I don't know if you heard the last segment. Uh, we had a, a caller um, who is Pakistani-American, and growing up, you know, um, he would meet other Pakistanis who would kind of accuse him of being uh, whitewashed. And I thought about that hashtag campaign going on right now on social media. Tell us about the uh, the whitewashing, whitewashing campaign of Hollywood. Yeah. So one of the weird things is that even though television has changed in this fashion, movies really haven't. I mean, we, we've gotten to a point now where uh, Asian Americans are are puzzled by the fact that we can't even get Asian actors to play Asian roles. 
that when there are stories that clearly have Asian protagonists in mind in their original source matter, uh, you know, Hollywood and specifically the motion picture studios still aren't convinced that an Asian performer, an Asian actor uh, has the talent, the stature, the credit, the box office appeal to cast in that role. So they rewrite the role for a non-Asian or they simply cast a non-Asian in the role pretending we won't notice that you know, Scarlett Johansson is not in fact Japanese, stuff like that. So uh, on Twitter, uh, which has kind of become the, you know, uh, the megaphone of Asian America, there have been people using this hashtag, uh, whitewashed out, to talk about the fact that roles that arguably could be star-making roles for Asians are being recast as non-Asian with the ironic excuse that there are no Asian stars. We have two Asian Americans in studio with me, uh, Sunny Chen, who is Chinese-American, also Quinn Trong, who is Vietnamese-American. Growing up, did you wish that um, you saw more faces like yourselves on television? Oh, definitely. I looked for people who looked slightly Asian or had slightly Asian-sounding names, and I, you know, I think... When Lucy Liu came out, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. I, I want to be her when I grow up. But I think it's it's hard to be Asian-American growing up in a predominantly Caucasian um, community and feeling like you're you're pretty or you're, you look like everybody else or that you can be measured in the same way. And so um, it's definitely affirming to see Asian-Americans in um, popular media, although that wasn't the case very much. I know, Sunny, you're busy um – you know, working and operating a restaurant uh, much of the week, so you probably don't have a lot of time to watch television. But um, do you see the subtle differences from the time when you were growing up and now, or are you seeing more Asian Americans in these roles? I mean, I, I know I see a lot of you know Jackie Chan movie, and you know a lot of <laughs> not just Asian people likes Jackie Chan. You know, like, feel like you know other race. You know, every, you know they love the karate movie. So yeah, yeah. Who doesn't love Jackie Chan? <laughs> Um, but I want to go back to you, uh, Jeff Yang. We've just got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask you just personally, your son's role on Fresh Off the Boat, how has that influenced or changed the conversations that you're having in your family about race, about stereotyping that goes on in pop culture? <laughs> you know, I think the most interesting thing about it, uh, other than the fact that when you have a kid who is thrust from anonymity to you know, being the star of a TV show, uh, it, a, a lot of dynamics just change in general. I mean, he, he walks out in public, and you have people, uh, not just other Asian Americans, not even just kids, but people of all ages, backgrounds, races, ethnicities, who are coming up to him and saying, oh, man, Eddie Huang, let me get a selfie with you. <laughs> uh, but the topics that are being talked about in Fresh Off the Boat are, are issues that you know, as a 12-year-old, in a lot of ways, he's been lucky enough not to have to face. You know, I grew up in a time, and I think your other guests grew up in a time when it was pretty consistent that at school, in the playground, we'd get called out. We'd be the only one, you know, out there and, and a lightning rod for some of the uh, sort of naive abuse that occurs uh, at that age range. And Hudson, I think, and my other son, uh, Skyler, have both grown up in, in worlds and backgrounds where they've been surrounded by diversity and they've been surrounded by people for whom the food they bring to lunch is actually really cool. And uh, that attitude towards difference, being different today, people find it interesting, appealing, uh, something that they want to experience as opposed to something that they fear and reject at that age range. 
that's something that really gives me hope. So when I talk about these things with, with Hudson, it, to me, it's, it's just refreshing and life-affirming to hear him say, you know, that's something that I haven't actually seen. And when I do see it, I have friends who back me up, as opposed to the circumstances I faced when I was growing up at his age. You just triggered a memory I had growing up in western Pennsylvania, one of the very few Indian Americans in my school. And, and one day I brought some curry in, and I remember the kids at the table going, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> the lunchbox moment. And yeah. I thought I had blocked that out, but you just brought it back for me, Jeff Yang. But I want to thank you so much for your contributions. Uh, Jeff Yang, thank you so much for joining Where We Live. You're the featured contributor for CNN Opinion. He's also the author of several books, including I Am Jackie Chan, My Life in Action, Eastern Standard Time, A Guide to Asian Influence in American Culture, From Astro Boy to Zen Buddhism. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. Thank you. Also in studio, Sonny Chen, Chinese-American and West Hartford resident, owner of Black Bamboo. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. And Quinn Trong, Vietnamese-American and Hartford resident. Thank you, Quinn. Thanks, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Tweet us at where we live or at Facebook. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Talarski. And I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. <laughs>